Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, a few months ago, I read an article in the New York Times called Why Everyone Seems to Have Cancer, which talked about the government's annual report to the nation on the status of cancer. Uh, I was fascinated with how its writer, George Johnson, looked at cancer not so much as a disease, but as, a, as he calls it, an evolutionary phenomenon. Um, and it is really from that vantage point that he is investigating the, the myths, the misunderstandings, the data, the history of cancer in his book, The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. This book uh, is, on the one hand, really a compelling uh, a biography of, of cancer, and on the other, it's a moving personal account of, of uh, uh, George's cancer journey, really, as he recounts counts his then-wife's cancer uh, diagnosis with a metastatic, what they call, quote, a metastatic cancer with unknown primary, um, end quote, uh, and, uh, and her subsequent treatment. I'm really thrilled to have George Johnson as our guest today. He writes regularly about science for the New York Times. He has also written for National Geographic, Slate, Discover, Scientific American, Wired, and The Atlantic. His work has been included in the best American science writing, and he has received awards from Penn and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. His books were twice finalists for the Royal Society's Book Prize. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I want to welcome you to the show, George. Oh, thanks very much. You know, uh, George, most of us uh, believe cancer to be a, a modern disease, really something that um, we're ha- perhaps hearing about more uh, recently, but you set us straight uh, in your book um, uh, about that, really at the beginning of your book, both in terms of mankind and, and, and animal life. Can you tell us a little bit about the oldest cases of cancer that have been found? Yes, it was a surprise to me. I mean, I knew vaguely somewhere in the back of my mind that cancer had probably you know, been around for centuries or millennia, you know, in one form or to one degree or another. And when I was first doing my research, I was surprised to come across a reference to a paper in the British uh, medical journal, The Lancet, referring to a Jurassic Age dinosaur dinosaur with uh, what's believed to be metastatic bone cancer. So Jurassic Age is 150 million years ago. And it seems that sometime... Uh, in this century, or actually toward the end of the last century, there was a doctor from Iowa who was vacationing in Colorado. He went into a rock shop, and he saw this fossil, and it was a petrified piece of dinosaur bone, and he looked at it, and just from the shape and the pattern of this distortion in the fossil, he thought it looked uh, cancerous, and he brought it home and added it to his rock collection. Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's really it is really amazing and I think probably shocking um to uh, uh um to our listeners. So so George why was it important for you to start the book by telling us about cancer you know in the age of of dinosaurs? Why does that matter? Yeah, I mean there, there were two reasons. I mean, one, I was thinking that you know, there's so many books written about cancer and no one's going to expect a book about cancer to start with a dinosaur. 
<laughs> and I also wanted to have a first chapter that would kind of sound all the major themes of the book uh, in a narrative way, and then um, and then bring in the, in uh, my personal story, which involved my former wife. And so the book opens with me driving around northwestern Colorado, trying to find uh, the area where this dinosaur, uh, this cancer, this fossilized tumor is actually what you could call it, has been found. And then through the chapter, I introduce the various themes about cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon and about something that has probably existed ever since we had multicellular creatures, creatures like us that are made of many, many cells. So you live in uh, you live in Santa Fe, Georgia, but you you, you travel to, uh, to 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 Colorado to the Dinosaur Museum. You travel to uh, the National History Museum in London to see yeah. you know other pre uh, prehistoric relics. What, what compelled you? Why was it important for you to travel and kind of see these things with your with your own eyes? What were you getting at in that exploration? So there's something about just the visceral feel of picking up a fossil. In the case of London. Uh, I had found out that Richard Leakey's father, Louis Leakey, back in the 1930s, had found a jawbone in Kenya of an early proto-human, a pre-human, that uh, appears to have um, have uh, a, 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 another bone cancer, osteosarcoma. And I'd read about this in a number of um, number of references, and I kept looking and looking. And as far as I could see, this fossil had never been on display. So mm. after you know a great deal of Difficulty. I uh, tracked tracked it down to the British Museum and persuaded them to let me come look at it. And there was just something about sitting in this room, you know, behind, you know, where the where the actual public part of the museum is, where they do the research and have this guy bring out this box and open it up and take it out. And then here's this this jawbone that maybe as much as a million years old. It's controversial as far as the dating, but. Uh, you can see inside the curve of the jaw what looks like um, oh, like larger than a jawbreaker, that old <laughs> piece of candy and small mm-hmm, as a golf mm-hmm. ball. It looks very much like a, like a tumor. Wow. Gosh, that's really... It is fascinating. I'm almost seeing it with you as you're telling this, uh, telling the story of, of, uh, of visiting it. Um, you know, George, the, the the so 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 moving to this sort of you know definition of cancer and and, and how you're yeah. thinking about this, you know, differently. We know that the NCI National Cancer Institute divide, defines cancer as a a term. This is a quote from NCI: a term used for diseases diseases in which abnormal cells divide without control yeah. and are able to invade other tissue, sort of their technical definition, you know, you, you describe, you know, we, again, I, I talked earlier about this sort of evolutionary phenomenon yeah. that you talk about and cancer cells as, 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 quote, descendants of a single cell gone mad. And you, you, in some ways don't really view that as, as, um, as abnormal. You, you view it as, um, inevitable. Um, can you tell us more about that viewpoint and how that evolved? Yes. I mean, it's, it's inevitable in the sense that, you know, there always has been cancer, and there always will be cancer. And the question is, to what degree can we minimize it? To what degree can we prevent it? And to what degree can we treat it when it occurs? But if you think back to the nature of evolution itself, you know, this began with a single-celled creature that, uh, through various mutations, uh, formed, you know, various abilities to survive, you know, things that made it fitter. And there was a point in evolution where cells... Uh, just happened to come together into these congregations that evolved into multicellular organisms. So, 
If you look at a human now, we're made of trillions of cells, but every one of those cells still has a certain amount of autonomy and independence. And uh, the way, the reason life works and is so wonderful is because these cells cooperate and they send signals to each other and they all kind of work together for what seems like to us like the good of the common whole, which is you, know, you and me. But from the point of view of the cell, yes. you know, it has this evolutionary imperative to divide and increase in fitness. So that has to be reined in to a certain extent to have multicellular creatures. But the process of reining it in is never perfect. And there's always a chance that one of these cells will kind of break loose and start evolving on its own within your body. Yeah, I, it's a, you know it, it's interesting you know telling the story from the perspective of the cancer in some ways. Well, yeah, I mean yeah. they're they're doing what evolution dictates, which is what makes it so scary, and that's what makes it so powerful and difficult to combat. So, yeah, I, I, well, I mean one thing that just really struck me uh, researching and writing the book was how we really need to get past this idea that cancer is something that you get. I mean, sometimes it is something you get. It can be occasionally caused by viruses. It can be caused by carcinogenic chemicals or dietary imbalances. But it's also something that's going to happen just because of what physicists call entropy, the fact that over time, complex systems get more and more disorderly. Order breaks down. And in the case of um, uh, multicellular creatures, this means that these these safeguards we have against the cell going rogue you know, start to erode. Yeah, and I know we're going to drill down uh, a little bit on the uh, in our discussion today about uh, about why that is and yeah. and when when and when when that happens and and um, you know some of the risk factors that are that are there in the in the cancer conversation. But let me I, we're we're getting uh, getting close to our our first break here, George. But let me stay at this higher level for a minute. Um, yeah. I'm just I'm fascinated as to how you sort of formed this this really unique and interesting perspective. Um, you you know you you've confessed to to seeing cancer as both quote unquote morbid. And fascinating, and you know, in the book, you talk about your own personal experience with your wife, and you sort of have this amazing sort of blend of that, and then also your science background. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you don't sort of use that phrase lightly. Can you explain what you what you mean by that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was just pulled in two directions writing the book. I mean, when I first started thinking about the book was after my wife had been diagnosed with the stage four metastatic cancer with a very low survival rate, and thankfully. She survived this 10 yeah. years later. Uh, but, you know, just the, the part of me that's fascinated, you know, by science and the mechanisms of life was just pulled in this other direction of just finding this so intellectually engaging. And yet I would, you know, constantly be drawn back just, you know, to realizing the tragedy of this, you know, from the point of view of, of we as humans. So I think a lot of cancer researchers are pulled in those same two directions of finding it's this intellectual, fascinating puzzle on one hand, which is good. Mm-hmm. It just drives mm-hmm. them to, to work on the problem. And then also, of course, just having this, this deep empathy for people who are suffering from this and fearing this. And, George, do you think it's it may be difficult for people outside of the medical or scientific community to, you know, understand the duality of what you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. That. You know, if it's, you know, someone had cancer, if I had cancer, I... You know, I, 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 I don't know. I guess if I had cancer, I would probably be pulled in the two directions. One, wanting to, 
know what it was about, the mechanism, how this happened in evolution, and why cells can do this, and why these things happen to people who do nothing wrong, who have none of the risk factors. But on the other hand, of course, it's just also just this horrible thing that people have to deal with, and very, very sad. And, and you know, was it, is it, is it, uh, was it sometimes a little bit difficult or, or, or awkward to kind of, you know, blend those, those two perspectives? Well, maybe for part of me it was a way to kind of deal with this. You know, when mm-hmm. someone you love has this, this life-threatening disease, there's part of you that might find refuge in trying to intellectualize mm-hmm. it and learn the, learn the mechanisms, and then you feel a little guilty for, for finding it fascinating, and then you just kind of oscillate, oscillate back and forth. Yeah, as a scientist, it just seems like that's, you know, that's how your brain works. So it's a, yeah. sort of a you know, natural default, to, you know, mechanism in terms of how you analyze things. It's so interesting. Um, my guest today is George Johnson. He is uh, the author of a book called The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's um, Deepest Mystery. And as, as I said, this is a, uh, it is a, in some ways, a biography of, of, of cancer. Um, and, uh, and on the other hand, really a, a very moving personal account of, uh, of George's wife's, uh, then wife's cancer journey and all of the challenges uh, 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 through that and seeing it through both of those lenses. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. 
Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Azi. I'm Kim Tivoldo, and today we're talking to George Johnson. He's the author of The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. He writes regularly about science for the New York Times. He's also written for National Geographic, Slate, Discover, Scientific American, Wired, and The Atlantic. Uh, you know, we know that when faced with a cancer diagnosis, most people will research cancer in, 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 in general terms. We hear, you know, folks pull up Google and start to do their research, and, and, uh, and certainly their specific cancer in particular, um, becoming quote-unquote experts to the extent that they're able, really in an effort to make the best possible decisions for themselves, you know, or for a loved one. And, and that research is really, a, it's, it's, it's one way that folks try to take control um, of the situation. But George, you know, few people are as qualified uh, as you uh, to wade through technical texts and, and studies and, and make sense of, of, of what they are, uh, they are reading. There's that, that old adage, you know, ignorance is bliss. Um, was, 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 was being a science writer, you think, an advantage or a disadvantage when your wife was diagnosed with cancer or a little bit of both? Uh, I think mostly, mostly an advantage, you know, as far as very quickly finding, finding information and, um, and, and just being used to, I mean, most of what I'd written about before this was, uh, you know, particle physics, you know, things like quarks and cosmology and, and super strings. And, mm. and so you get used to, you know, dealing with some very, very complex topics, although in some ways cancer seems more complex than, than any of that. Um, I ended up with, I think, 100 pages of uh, footnotes in my book, even though it's a popular book for a general audience. I just wanted yeah. to have those references ready. Plus, I just really, you know, like like doing that. I really like digging out papers and finding things and finding patterns and trying to put it all together. So did your investigation on this issue start when your wife was diagnosed with cancer? Or well, that's did you have when I, any, yeah, yeah, that's when I really first started thinking about it deeply. I mean, at some point, I think it was around then, I either read or I reread this really great article that Robert Weinberg, uh, who's one of the premier cancer researchers in the world at the Massachusetts Institute of uh, Technologies, mm-hmm. and um, he had written an article for Scientific American about cancer, and I read that or reread that around then and was really struck by this idea that cancer consists of a cell undergoing or a line of cells undergoing a series of mutations. So, so the way I think about it is you imagine the cell you know, that's sitting there and then it divides into two daughter cells. I mean, this happens, this is how cells reproduce. So the process of mitosis, they call it. So the cell divides into two daughter cells and in doing that, the cell has to copy all of its DNA, you know, the whole genetic program. You know, for a human cell, that includes all of the genetic program for making us. <laughs> it has to yeah. copy that faithlessly into two cells. And then each of these two cells divide. So now you have four cells, and it just keeps dividing and doubling. And every time going down the line, all of that DNA has to be copied. So obviously you're going to have copying errors. You know, just nothing is perfect. You know, we live in a world of, of entropy. And through evolution, we've evolved safeguards to correct many and maybe most of those mistakes. You know, there's actually DNA proofreading enzymes that go through and find errors and then, and then correct them. But again, these, these are imperfect. So 
cells, as they go through life, divide and divide. They accumulate more mutations. And then the ones that aren't corrected, you know, most of these are either harmless or they're so harmful they kill the cell, they take it out of the game, and, you know, other cells, you know, fill in the space. But there's certain mutations, and if you get approximately six of these, this is how Weinberg described it Mm -hmm. in his article, uh, you get approximately six of these of a certain kind, and then that cell has basically developed the ability to start evolving on its own within the body. So, um, you know, it's very much like a creature evolving in the primordial swamp. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it, 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 and it's changing and adapting, sort of, you know, Darwin yeah. at, uh, at play at the cellular level. That's you know, it's it's just a fascinating way way to um, to think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, so 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 George, so you know, we we deal here at the cancer support community with a lot of people who are diagnosed with cancer, and of course, the first thing they do is they go to Google. They, <laughs> they yeah. the, you know, they type in the kind of cancer that they have, and which is of course overwhelming because you get millions and millions of 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 of, uh, of responses. Right. But it's a starting point for people to just even wrap their heads around it. When your wife was diagnosed, where where did you start your investigation as it relates yeah, to her cancer? I mean, really, the same thing with Google and. <laughs> And you know, sometimes that's you know, you know, it's not it's very discouraging what you read. But, but in my wife's case, it, it started out, and I'm sure this will be familiar to a lot of your listeners. Just uh, out of the blue, one day she noticed that she had this uh, lump in her um, in her uh, right inguinal area, and you know, immediately you think you know swollen lymph node, and you know, of course, we've all had swollen lymph nodes from strep throat, and we've had them from different diseases, and. You know, we assumed it was some kind of infection, and then, and then we had this vague idea of something called cat scratch fever. So we're madly googling cat scratch fever and seeing that, sure enough, this can cause swollen lymph nodes, and are wondering about a hernia. And um, then she went uh, to a to a surgeon in town, or she was referred to a surgeon by her uh, primary doctor, and yeah. the surgeon thought uh, it might be a hernia, and. Um, and it was it took oh, it was you know weeks of of this kind of back and forth, including this terrible delay where her father had had a hemorrhagic stroke, and she had to return to the east coast to be with her to be with her family and then finally going back and getting a biopsy and then finding out that the lymph node was uh, full of uh, carcinoma cells, cancer cells and and we had no idea where they were coming from. You know what the primary was. Something in her body was, uh, you know, somewhere there was a carcinoma shedding uh, carcinoma cells and metastasizing, and it had spread to the lymph system. But they needed to figure out, you know, where it had begun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's a little comforting to know that someone with your background started the same way. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, when it comes and, to drilling and, down on this, but. <laughs> I understand, George, as you advanced your, you know, research and, and started thinking about the book and really drilling down that um, that you really discovered a lot of contradictory data in your research about uh, uh, about cancer. Um, can you give us some some examples about some of the contradictions that you were finding in your research and and um, what, what yeah. sort of sense you were able to to make of it through that process? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these were contradictions against things that I had just always believed and assumed were true, and I'm sure many. Other people do as well. Um, like I would have assumed that there's just a very, very strong connection, 
you know, in epidemiological studies, um, you know, where they go out and try to, you know, find, you know, find causes of cancer and in the population, uh, I, I had just assumed that a great deal of cancer was probably caused by synthetic chemicals in the environment. You know, whether this is a, a waste dump, like a chemical waste dump run by Dow Chemical somewhere in the Northeast, or or whether it's uh, chemical additives in food or um, air pollution. And I just assumed that a you know significant amount of cancer was probably caused by these poisons put into the atmosphere by modern life. And then you start tracking down the science. And this is very mainstream science. This is nothing controversial, but really, as terrible as all these pollutants may be in other ways, there's very little evidence that these are causing more than a few percent of all cancers in, say, the United States, for example, and elsewhere. Yeah, and I I know, um, you know, George, in your writing, you really talk talk about, um, you look at sort of comparisons of cancer and heart disease, and we really talk about, you know, cancer as a as a disease of an of a of an aging uh, of an aging population, and obviously we're all living longer. Um, So. So does does that does that mean that I know I know that we we know for example that a lot of cancers have no known we say no known genetic link does that mean my grandmother or great grandmother very well if she had lived to eighty would have had cancer but she died of pneumonia at forty well and- yeah I mean that's 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 basically the idea uh, that that was again one of the big contradictions I'd assumed that cancer rates were increasing year by year and it really does seem the older you get that you know so many people you know are people you know, know people who are getting cancer. And, and there's very much the sense of you know, living in a modern cancer epidemic. But then when you look at the statistics and you realize you have to adjust these for, just as you said, the aging of the population, the fact that because we've defeated or at least quelled so many other diseases that we live longer and longer, and the longer you live, the more chance it is that one of your cells, one of those trillions of cells in your body, is going to accumulate that combination of mutations that gives us the power to develop into a cancerous tumor. So that was another surprise, finding that actually year by year the overall cancer rate for the last two decades has remained steady and has been slightly mm-hmm. declining. And that's both the mm-hmm. incidence of cancer, you know, how often it occurs in the population and how many people die from cancer. But again, you have to, that's adjusted for the aging of the population. For the aging of the population. Yeah. And we've only got a quick minute here, George, but can you tell us, just to, to bring it to life a little bit, what are some of the, the diseases, let's say, over the past hundred years that we've been able to, to, to manage or overcome so that things like cancer are coming more to the forefront? Oh, well, tuberculosis is, of course, a, a big mm. one, and, and all of the infectious diseases, you know, cholera, bubonic plague. Uh, people used to die of pneumonia much more often than they do now and things that are treatable. Yeah, yeah, so that moves things like heart disease and cancer up the ladder. Well, yeah, and, and then finally in the last 50 years, uh, great strides uh, have, been, have been made in preventing heart cancer, or at least staving it off until later in life. Uh, don't go away, folks. We've got a lot more, um, a lot more to talk about today with uh, with writer and author George Johnson. Uh, we're 
talking about his book, The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest, uh, uh, Deepest Mystery. We're talking about uh, uh, the, the long, <laughs> long and deep history of, of, uh, of cancer. And um, uh, we're going to, when we come back, really start to, uh, we're going to do a little lightning round, George, if you don't mind. And I want to okay. sort of, get into some of these sort of myths and, and, and misconceptions and drill down on some of those contradictions that you discovered in your research sure. and, and set some of those mysteries. So this is, uh, frankly speaking, about cancer. I'm your host, uh, Kim Tebaldo. Don't go away. We will be right back. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Morphotech. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I am joined by George Johnson, author of The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. He writes regularly about science for the New York Times, and his work has been included in the best American science writing. Uh, he has received awards from Penn and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, I, I, you know, I, as I said earlier before we got into our break, uh, George, I'd like to jump into a little bit of a, of a lightning round because um, sure. uh, I want to tackle some of these myths and strongly held um, assumptions that you do confront uh, in the book. I think it's, it's important for people sure. to understand that. One of the things we hear a lot about are cancer uh, clusters um, or, or this idea that many cancers are caused by um, environmental factors, and you have found that there's really not much uh, basis to, the, to those connections. Can you tell us a, a, for, about that for a minute? Yeah, I mean, that was, it was a big surprise for me. And I mean, it's, it's definitely true that there are industrial synthetic chemicals that are powerful carcinogens. They cause cancer 
and they found cancer clusters in industrial settings. You know, this is where workers are exposed to these things daily and at very mm-hmm. high levels. And there's no question, you know, that this is a hazard and they need to be, you know, strictly, strictly regulated. The surprise, uh, not just to me, but I think to many epidemiologists and cancer biologists, is that um, among the general population, even the load of chemicals we have living in modern life are so dilute, there's very little evidence that they're causing more than a little uplift in the um, cancer rate. I mean, we hear about uh, cancer clusters. Probably the most famous was the one that was um, in the movie Aaron Brockovich, yes. uh, which turns out to be much more fiction than it was fact. And you know, later, an epidemiological study by the state of California found that there was no evidence that the cancer rate uh, in Hinkley, California, where, you know, the the cancer cluster supposedly existed, uh, um, that the cancer rate there was any more elevated than for the general population. Now, that surprised me. I just always assumed, you know, a lot of it's the hype from the, the movie that this was a really serious thing where all these people got cancer, but, you know, it, as it turns out, they... Got, they would have gotten the cancer probably anyway, and you have to take into a fact, into account, you know, how many people in the community smoke, how many in the people, how many people mm-hmm. in the community are obese, or how many may have genetic predispositions to cancer, which is a smaller factor, or or Three Mile, not Three Mile Island, um, Love Canal, <laughs> the yeah. other great American American disaster, iconic disaster. I mean. I, I, I'm sure most of your lo- listeners remember the news about Love Canal or have read about it in history books. This was this horrible, toxic chemical waste dump in upstate New York near Niagara Falls where they ended up building a residential neighborhood on top of the dump, including a sc- elementary school. And yeah. that led to, this was the first uh, Superfund site in the United States. It's what you know, gave um, birth to the legislation and, and to the name Superfund, cleanup site. And decades later, the state of New York went back and did an epidemiological study. They tracked down as many people who had lived in, in uh, Three Mile Island as they could, people who had grown yeah. up there. They adjusted for all the factors like smoking, aging, obesity, and they found that uh, the cancer rate was actually just slightly lower than that for the general population. So just yeah, interesting. Yeah. No, it's fascinating when you drill down on the science. It is, uh, you know, it is interesting how these sort of messages can, can, can take hold, as you said, sort of through, you know, different media, uh, you know, different uh, media outlets. Yeah. Um, George, eating fruits and vegetables, does it reduce your risk of cancer? How can that, that not be true? Oh, man, God, I just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was afraid to get into that. I just recently wrote two columns for the New York Times, and one was called uh, An Apple a Day, Another Myth. And and so uh, the occasion for this was I just got back um, a few weeks ago from the big annual cancer research meeting, the American Association for Cancer Research in San Diego. Yeah. And one thing that struck me was how, and, and with all of those meetings, how you'll, you'll find very, very few sessions sessions uh, concerning diet and cancer. Yeah, you know, and some people will say this is because of some great medical industry conspiracy. You know, people right. are trying to suppress the evidence about nutrition so more people will get cancer so, you know, the cancer treatment centers can make more money, which is, of course, 
absurd and insulting right. to all the good doctors who work in these sure. places. But sure. um, again, you look at the epidemiology. Uh, back in um, oh, was the late um, 1980s, a huge study came out in which uh, a panel of scientists went through and looked at all the nutritional and cancer evidence, and they concluded back you know, before 1990 that there was a significant protective effect in eating fruits and vegetables. The, the real take-home message from the study, you know, this big phone book thick study, was that eating a diet uh, uh, heavy and even top-heavy in fruits and vegetables can reduce overall cancer incidents by as much as 20%. And then they found uh, several cases where, you know, specific kinds of foods like, you know, blueberries or onions or broccoli could uh, reduce the um, uh, incidence of specific kinds of cancer, they, they, what they described as convincing evidence. Well, 10 years later, they did an update, you know, just as thick and thorough a report, and they had better, newer epidemiology they looked at, and almost all of those effects disappeared. They, they, they found that there was no convincing evidence. There might have been you know, suggestive evidence or slight evidence for very, very weak effects. And this is really the dominant view today. And what struck me at this meeting in San Diego was a keynote uh, talk by Walter Willett, who's probably one of the most famous experts on nutrition and disease and particularly um, cancer and heart disease. And he gave a talk in which he just basically went through this history and how the, the links between cancer and diet have just become weaker and weaker. But at the same time, the link between obesity and cancer is becoming much stronger. Inter- interesting. Now, at first, so it seems like a contradiction. But there could be a correlation. So the correlation could be more fruits and vegetables means less obesity. Well, yeah, I mean, the more fruits and vegetables you eat, maybe the fewer, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs you'll eat or the fewer candy bars. And and then you have the difficulty of, you know, the people that tend to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, you know, are probably health-conscious people who exercise more and are just, you know, yeah. you know good, good about taking care of themselves and are less likely to become obese. And people can, you know, and, and, and dietary factors have a very strong influence on whether you get type 2 diabetes. And 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 whether you become obese, and obesity and type two diabetes are all correlated with uh, higher cancer risk. So, but yeah. as far as the specific elements of your right. diet, you know, eating right. so many blueberries, eating broccoli instead of this, very very little evidence. It's not what you eat so much right. as how much you eat. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What about George? Uh, radiation from cell phones, uh, microwaves. What did the study show on that? Well, you know, of course, there's. There's a whole spectrum of radiation. It goes down to, you know, the heat waves coming from your your fireplace (laughs) in the lower frequencies up through the radio waves or the broadcast stations that you listen to. And then sometime after that, you get to visible light, which is all radiation. And then when you get to the very, very highest, highest frequencies, you get what's known as ionizing radiation. And this is radiation that's so powerful, it can break the chemical bonds in your cells. Now, these are X-rays and these are gamma rays. I mean, those are definitely carcinogenic. They cause cancer. But cell phones and microwaves, these are way down at the other end, the low, low end of the scale, below visible light and somewhere around heat. 
you know, these, these don't have the power to um, break molecular bonds, and there's just no scientific mechanism by which you know, anyone could argue convincingly that these give people cancer. So I don't think there's, you know, there's maybe two or three people in the world that keep churning out, you know, papers claiming to find a slight link, but these experiments are never replicated, and it's not something that's taken seriously. If you go to the AACR meeting website, this big cancer meeting I went to, and search, you know, any year for microphones or cell phones, you might find one or two papers among the thousands that were presented, and these will probably be papers debunking the, debunking mm. the link. Um, George, let's get back. Uh, let's get back to the numbers for a minute. We've got a couple yeah. minutes till the break, but let's get back to the numbers. True or false? More people than ever are getting cancer because everywhere you turn, it does seem like somebody else has cancer. Tell us about the numbers. Yeah, I, I mean, adjusted for the aging of the population and the fact the population is getting larger. You know, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, you know, I mean, it may seem that way because there's more. There's a more, larger proportion of older people in in the. Um, the United States every year because of you know the other advances in health and the median age for cancer diagnosis and cancer fatality depending on on um, you know just which just which ways you calculate the numbers it turns out to be like in your mid 60s or early 70s so cancer is a disease that you're far more likely to get uh, after your sixth decade of life because it takes that long to accumulate. The mutation. So the more people that live that long, it'll seem more people have cancer, but it's not because there's an epidemic. It's because we're getting to live longer. And, and so the greatest risk factor for cancer is age. Yeah. And where does cancer, in terms of, of, of how, how, how cancer is killing us in America, where does it stand against heart disease? Ah, now that's an interesting thing because one thing you, you hear frequently is that since 1950, Heart disease, death from heart disease, you know, adjusted for the aging of the population, has gone way down while death from cancer has gone down only slightly. It's remained almost steady and slightly diminishing. And a lot of people will say, well, this is, you know, shows that we're losing the war on cancer because we haven't kept up on heart disease. We haven't kept up with the success in heart disease. But then you have to turn it around and think, well, what would happen if it were the other way around and we'd been as successful with reducing deaths from cancer as we yeah. have been from heart disease. I mean, what then do people die from? I mean, yeah. in many ways, it's a zero-sum game. You're going to die of one thing or another, and the more people who are living and surviving heart disease, which is a wonderful thing, means more people living long enough to get those mutations that bring yeah. on a cancer. Bring on the cancer. Fascinating. You know, fascinating look at the uh, at the statistics. This is frankly speaking about cancer. I'm uh, talking today with George Johnson, who's the author of the Cancer Chronicles: Unlocking Medicine's uh, uh, Deepest Mystery. Um, we could talk for hours. We're going to another break um, right now, but we've got more to talk about in our in our uh, final segment, which is coming up. So please don't go away. We're going to continue this conversation with George, and we're just uh, we're learning a great deal on the show today. So stay around. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. 
how to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen. I'm Kim Tebow, though today we're talking with George Johnson, author of The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. He writes regularly about science for the New York Times. He's written for National Geographic, Scientific American, Wired, The Atlantic, a, a, a prolific science writer. Um, uh, you know, George, we've been talking a lot uh, about your research, but this book is also about uh, your, your uh, personal journey yeah. uh, with your wife's diagnosis of cancer. You're, you know, you're remarkably straightforward about the fears and the doubts that, uh, that you experienced as a result of your investigation. Uh, you know, one of the areas you explore is whether or not uh, personal uh, choices you made, such as where you live in New Mexico, not having children, other things yeah, yeah. perhaps con- contributed you know, to that, and I, you know, what, what, what made you, I think it's fascinating the way the book structured is both sort of a, a you know, a history, a chronicle, and a, and a, and a memoir. What, what right. made you take that approach? Yeah, I wanted to, I mean, my goal with this book was to, to write something that would really lay out this big picture, you know, maybe like a bird's eye view or even a jet airplane's view of what science knows and doesn't know about cancer. And coming into this as an outsider, you know, it's just an overwhelmingly huge subject, and I thought, how can I, you know, really 
arrange this information in an interesting way and then just find a, a cut through this huge, huge body of knowledge. And so I decided that it would make sense to use uh, Nancy's story as kind of a narrative backbone. And I didn't want her story to be in the forefront. I mean, there's there's plenty of really good books about people's experience with cancer. and uh, But I wanted to use that as kind of a way to go from subject subject and, and 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 so it kind of comes forward and then recedes into the into the background and you know I should mention that um, although you know I, I I referred to her earlier as my ex-wife Nancy and I are no longer married but uh, but uh, she survived this cancer that had this very low low survival rate on paper it's just a very good thing for people to remember that you're not a statistic and yeah yeah well we're certainly happy to hear. That and hear that she's um, that she's doing well. At the yeah, time. How, did, how, did, how did she feel about being sort of the you know the center the, the, the you know the, the centerpiece of this or sort of the foundation <laughs> of this exploration? Yeah, she yeah she was fine with that. And you know, I start when I started writing the book or in researching it, uh, we were still married, and and um, and and along the way, I, I sent her chapters, and she re- I read the manuscript before it was published because I wanted to make sure there was. Well, two reasons. I wanted to make sure there was nothing that, uh, you know, that she'd feel bad about, about uh, you know, having having in public, and, and also just to, to kind of check my own memory of things. And it was interesting how there were certain cases where we remembered things differently. Yeah. And I'd go back and look at it, and sometimes I'd be right, and sometimes she'd be right, <laughs> yeah. and uh, other times uh, it was indeterminate. So I, uh, I made, tried to make that clear. In the tried book. To, to blend those elements. Yeah, yeah. Um, George, I'd like to read a little excerpt here from the book, if that's okay. Yeah, be great. Um, I'm going to start with this uh, quote. Uh, the first nights of these interludes were the hardest. She would awaken in the dark, sometimes so quietly that I didn't hear her rise to go to the bathroom. One morning she told me that she had felt so weak that she lay on the bathroom rug for a while before returning to bed. Why didn't she call out for me, and how had I slept through that? Uh, I read years later that because of the toxic effects of chemo drugs, family members are advised to sleep separately and not share a bathroom. We didn't know that, and I don't think I would have cared. Now, that's a very... That's a very uh, personal, mm. personal uh, statement there, George. I'm sure it brings some things, uh, yeah. some things back for you. And I, I, I'm interested that you call this book the, the Cancer Chronicles. Tell me about that that title. That that word chronicle is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted to get the sense that I was telling telling a story or, or telling a series of stories as in a chronicle, and um, and then there was also kind of a resonance with. Uh, there was a book um, called uh, uh, ju- ju- um, what is it? Was it Journey of the Plague Years, or was it Chronicle mm-hmm. of the Plague Years? Um, mm-hmm. God, I should know that if I'm going to give it as an example. But anyway, there was kind of a historical historical resonance to the title that I liked, and kind of this sense that it would be a book that had had a certain literary dimension too. Because for me, the the writing and the way the words work on the page are are very important and. Um, and what I, well, and certainly what I just read doesn't sound like it was written by a science writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's certainly different from my other books, yeah. and certainly the most personal, personal yeah. book yeah. I've written, and I'm sure will ever write. And do you think that um, 
Do you think that you will? I, I know you just wrote, you know wrote a piece in January that I referenced uh, earlier in the yeah, show. Do right. you think will you continue to write about cancer? Is this a is this now a new sort of thematic yeah, topic in your work? Yeah. Yeah, I've actually, this year I started writing a monthly column for the New York Times called Raw Data, and I've done four columns so far, and and uh, two of those were about cancer, and one was yeah. about the subject of uh, nutrition and cancer, and another one was about the strange parallels between uh, uh, the growth of an, a human embryo and the growth of a cancer, which is... Really, a lot of disturbing parallels there that again bring home the idea that there's this level where cancer is just this unfortunate natural trade off of evolution that's kind of built into us as being multicellular creatures. And it also drives home the message that, you know, no one should ever think that they got cancer or someone got cancer because they did something wrong. I mean, it's hardly ever the case. You know, unless you're like a chain smoker and get lung cancer, but it's hardly ever the case that you can point to some specific cause for any one specific cancer. There's so much randomness involved. Yeah, yeah, and we do certainly have a lot of people exploring, you know, at our centers around the country, exploring that 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 question, that broader question. Is there something yeah. that I did for myself? And it is interesting, George, that one of the one of the things that is most interesting to people with cancer is is uh, around nutrition and exercise. And I think, in some ways, you know, even though as you're telling us, informing us, really, that the science is not there, I think in some ways it's a way for people to take control. Oh, because absolutely. Because when they make certain adjustments in diet and exercise, they actually do better and feel better. Oh, and yeah, so I yeah, think yeah. it's a way for them to take control, which is, I think, interesting. And, and it's important to, you know, it's important to be healthy. And no one's sure. saying that eating a balanced diet is, is bad yeah. for you. You know, it's probably that's good right. for you. So, yeah, that's and, and right. That's right. And I think that healthy. sometimes yeah. folks in, that situ- in this situation are are um, are good uh, are a good audience for for behavior change, for steps towards you know behavior change and a healthier lifestyle. We have a captive audience with with survivors, which has been interesting for us to see and learn. Yeah. Um, George, I just I really um, appreciate you coming on to the show today. I, again, I, I think we could talk for hours. It's such a fascinating yeah. topic, and I I just I I really appreciate and admire the. Blame end of the book, which is, you know, again, both personal and, and uh, scientific. I think it's a very rare um, approach, but gives it, a, it, you know, gives the, the science piece a whole different, you know, very personal context um, that, uh, I, I, you know, I think is so uh, really insightful and, um, uh, and moving. So it's been a real um, pleasure to have you uh, on the show today. I just want to take a quick moment to uh, make sure our listeners know about our work at the Cancer Support Community. Um, We have uh, 50 centers around the country, 100 satellite locations where we provide free support services to patients and families, people with all cancers at all stage of disease. We provide support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. Um, You can find a list of our centers and a whole host of other um, resources on our website at uh, www.cancer.org cancersupportcommunity.org. We also have a wonderful helpline that's staffed by licensed counselors. If you're struggling with some issues, we'd like to speak to one of our counselors, please call our helpline at 888-793-9355. Again, all of our services are uh, free of charge, available to any person with any kind of cancer at any stage of their illness. We really um, want folks to know that uh, if you are facing a uh, cancer diagnosis, you do not have to face cancer alone. We're here by your side to help you through that journey. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Support Community.org.